It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Thought leaders and experts join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Losing someone you care about can be painful and traumatic. The thought of continuing on with your life without this person by your side is often overwhelming and can leave you feeling hopeless. Joining me to talk about how we can navigate the loss, release regrets, and feel hopeful again is David Kessler, a grief and loss specialist. David is the author of five best-selling books, including two with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on grief and grieving and life lessons. His first book, The Needs of the Dying, received praise by Mother Teresa. David is a contributing writer for Oprah.com and Dr. Oz's ShareCare.com. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for joining us. So glad to be with you. So, David, when a person experiences loss, whether it's due to death, divorce, breakup, it can be life-changing and overwhelming. And, and I know this firsthand because about eight years ago, in a period of six months, my 23-year marriage ended, my mother died, and my sister passed away. And I experienced such deep grief that from day to day, I often didn't even know what it was I was grieving. And it wasn't that I wanted to die. It was just that I didn't know how to live. And I know many people experience similar type feelings. So I want to start off with how you got focused on this type of work, what puts you on the journey of helping people heal from loss? Well, like you, I, I uh, was a student of loss, too. I was 13 years old when my mother was dying. And at the same time she was dying, at the hospital where she was dying and the hotel next door, there was a mass shooting. So at 13 years old, I found myself in the middle of a mass shooting that went on for 13 hours. It was one of the first mass shootings in the U.S. So I watched police officers die, first responders, hotel guests, and then my own mother. So I, I had a lot of death early on. And I spent decades trying to find my way through it and uh, was able to do it and wanted to really pass on all the things that I had learned to help others get through the pain live again, even find happiness again. Now, when you're in grief, that seems impossible, and I understand it, but there, there is help out there and ways out. You and I are both examples that there is a way through it, and you can find joy and happiness again, but you're right. When you're going through it, you don't feel that that's possible. So I want to talk a little bit about the stages of what people are feeling so that they can better understand these emotions. So there are five stages of grief. Let's talk about what each is and just maybe a little bit of background and description about what someone might expect while in that stage. Sure. So uh, psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is my teacher, identified the stages of dying in her first book on death and dying. And decades later, 
her and I adapted those same stages for grief. One of the things that Elizabeth and I want to say and we share in the book is these stages are not a map for grief. Everyone's grief is different. We don't have to do them in exact order, but they do seem to occur naturally. So, and, you know, Elizabeth was the first one to say, you know, if it's These don't resonate with you. It's fine. Just deal and feel your feelings. So the stages are denial, the disbelief. I can't believe they're gone. That shock that we go through. Then the next stage is anger. And we live in an anger denying society. We don't like other people's anger. There's not a lot of permission to have anger these days. Um, And, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that we allow ourselves to be angry about traffic we don't allow ourselves to be angry when someone dies. The next stage is bargaining. And bargaining before someone dies is that, please, God, let me have five more years with her. I'm going to be a better husband, a better man. After death, bargaining becomes all those what-ifs, all the regrets we have. And those can be tremendously hard to deal with and haunting, you know, when we feel guilty that maybe if we had done one thing different, they would still be here. And then we have depression. And we have pathologized depression. You know, there's a word we don't use anymore. We don't use the word sadness. And in Kubler-Ross's day, sadness and depression were really one and the same. But now they've gone off in two different directions, and we don't really allow ourselves to be sad. And when we talk about depression after a loss, we're talking about situational depression. Someone has died, and that's the situation, and that situation is depressing. And our society's message these days around depression is you're broken and you need help because you can't make it through this. My message is you are not broken. You come from a long line of dead people, and you have the strength, just like your ancestors and your great-grandparents, to get through this. And I want to give you lots of tools and resources to help you get through this because you can. And it's going to be devastating, but you can get through this. And then we have acceptance. And acceptance doesn't mean you like the loss. It doesn't mean you're okay with the loss. It just means you acknowledge the reality of the loss. So those are the five stages. I'm actually in the process of writing a new book um, about the sixth stage, which I believe is the stage of meaning that we're also a generation that we want to find and make meaning after a loss. Two points. The first one, when you were talking about depression, I think we're so hard on ourselves. And you're right. We don't allow ourselves to feel. We get so caught up in the people around us who start to say, you know, it's it's been five months. It's been a year. Isn't it time for you to move on? And when we hear that, and, and then I'll get to my second point, but when someone says that to us, when we are feeling sad, and, and rightly so, we've had a deep relationship with someone that we've loved, and that person is no longer in our life. When we're feeling sad and someone says to us, isn't it time for you to move on? How do we address that? Well, Joe, when people say, how long are they going to grieve? How long is this going to go on? I sometimes will say, how long is the person going to be dead? Because if they're going to be dead a long time, you're going to grieve a long time. Now, that doesn't mean you will always grieve with pain. You know, in time, we can grieve with love. We can just miss them and send them sweet thoughts, and they will always have a soft spot in our heart. But we don't have to be in pain. But you're so right. You know, our friends, our society says you've got three days, said you should be done in a year. And that's not how grief works. 
And when people very say true. that to us, David, people tend to withdraw and they no longer share their feelings because they figure, I don't have anyone to talk to about this anymore. And that's why we're finding that grief support groups are so helpful. Being online is helpful. There's a lot of groups now online. Um, I have online courses and groups that people can be in. There's lots of different ways to connect now. And, you know, sometimes your friends, your husband, your wife might not be the best grief support person for you. And the other thing I tell people is, you know, they haven't had your loss. They haven't lost a sister, a child, a husband, and they have a different style of grieving than you. They haven't experienced it. They might not know. So you just have to know if they say something stupid, they just don't know. They, they don't mean to hurt you. They just don't know. And David, the second point that I wanted to bring up when you were talking about the sixth stage being meaning, I am in total agreement. I see that in my life. And, and as you described, your life took on meaning because of your grief. And I'm doing the work that I'm doing. I'm talking to you today because of my grief. So I can see how that can be extremely important in all of our lives. Absolutely. And, and you know, we're shaped by our griefs the same way our great-grandparents and our parents were. And we also want to do grief well so that we pass it on to generations in a healthy way, not in an unhealthy way. And David, I think an important thing to note about these stages, I, as I said, I'm eight years down the road now from that very traumatic period in my life. And 90% of the time, I'm I'm doing very well. I've moved through it. But then every once in a while, there's a trigger. And it's like it happened yesterday. And I'm right back in the, the stages. I'm, I'm going through them all. So is it a natural progression? Or is it just natural to have these stages occur for an expanded period of our life once we have the loss? Well, think of it, you know, in your case that, of course, you know, when your mother or your sister's birthday comes up, why wouldn't you have feelings again about that? You know, when something comes up that uh, reminds you of your loved ones who died, why, why wouldn't that, you know, impact you? I mean, the love you had was real, so of course it's going to impact you. Now, the key is a lot of times people talk about grief bursts. They're doing fine, they're doing well, and then all of a sudden they have this burst of grief. And I try to teach people to begin to notice, was it a grief burst or a love burst? Because early on in grief, and you know what I call early grief? I call early grief the first two years. Early on in grief, when you have those triggers, those memories, all of a sudden you might burst into tears. In time, you might just see your mother's favorite flowers blooming, and you have this burst of love. So just know you know, we will always remember them. We always will love them. That's natural. And we, we wouldn't want it any other way if you think about it. David, I was looking at the list on grief.com, your site, of the worst things that people can say when someone is experiencing grief. And I have to tell you, these are things that I'm guilty of saying and people have said to me. So can you share some of the things that may not be the best things that we can say to help someone move through this? Sure. Well, you want to, first of all, that, that page on grief.com is one of the most visited pages because we're not taught what to say. We don't know what to say. So I'm so glad people do visit that page to learn things. 
So some of the best things and worst things, some of the worst things are anything that minimizes or judges a grief. Um, at least they lived a long life. At least they're not sick anymore. At least you can have more children. Any sentence that begins with at least is going to be minimizing. And what we want in our grief that we really need to heal is grief must be witnessed. We want at least one other person to witness our grief, to just see our pain without trying to point out the silver lining or the bright side. So things go wrong when we don't see someone's pain and we just say, oh, well, aren't you glad they lived to a uh, hundred years? Don't be sad or, you know, be strong. Be strong really means don't have feelings. Or at least it was just a miscarriage. I mean, some of these things, we don't mean to say things that are harsh, but we don't realize how harsh they are for someone in grief. And some of the best things we can say to people is, I don't have the right words, but just know I'm here with you. And I'm going to be walking along your side with you as you go through this. Or tell them a favorite story of their loved one. Or just sit and hold their hand. But let go of that need to point out the silver lining and fix the person. The person's not broken. They're in grief. David, what about survivor's guilt? How do we know when it's okay to perhaps date again or to even allow yourself to feel happy? I know when I was going through it, I would constantly remind myself of the loss. It was almost like my way to honor them that I felt if I was too happy or moving forward, it was like I was forgetting the person I loved. And I think a lot of people may feel the same way. So how do we give ourselves permission to move forward and love again and not feel like we have to cry? And, and when we're happy, we're not betraying our loved person. Well, it's so true what you say, that that sense of betrayal comes up, that we're betraying them, that we have no right to be happy when they die. So a lot of times when I work with people, I'll, I'll mention things like, tell me why maybe you think you should have died and your loved one should have lived. And they will always tell me, my loved one deserved more happiness. My loved one deserved more time. Um, my loved one still had purpose. My loved one had more to do. And I'll turn all those things right back on the person in grief and say, isn't that true for you too? Don't you deserve more happiness? Don't you deserve more time? Don't you have more to do here? And they'll, they'll just feel so bad that their loved ones have died and they are continuing to live or they get to have happiness. And sometimes I'll say to them, what if the tables were turned? What if you had died and your loved one had lived? Would you wish them to be paralyzed because of your loss? Would you wish them another 40 years of emptiness? Or would you want your loved one to be happy? David, how do we know when the grief is too much for us to go it alone? What are some signs that maybe we should seek some help? Sure. Well, first of all, that is part of grieving is this overwhelming terrain. I mean, grief is supposed to turn our world upside down. So when our world gets turned upside down, we do have this feeling that something's wrong. But that is what grief looks like. Now, sometimes people will say to me, you know, because I teach a lot of therapists how to deal with grief and loss with their clients. And they'll go, I have a client that can't get out of bed. And I'll go, when? Because 
if they can't get out of bed three days after the death, that might be normal. If they, if they tell me they come home from work and they crawl into bed on the weekend a month after the death, that might be normal. Now, Monday morning, if you're missing work and it's been a month or two months and you're not able to complete the activities of daily living, then you might want to get help. You know, it doesn't mean if you go to work, you're going to be sharp as a tack. We talk about things like grief brain or grief fog. I mean, grief makes it hard to concentrate. We're not going to be our best selves, but we're going to be on our authentic, loving selves that miss someone so much. So partly, we don't know what grief looks like, so we think something is wrong. But certainly, um, if you go to grief.com, there's a directory of therapists in your area, usually. Um, there's also a place on grief.com to look up groups in your area, free groups that you can attend. And there's so much help online. So I encourage anyone who feels like they do need help or they are having trouble just doing what needs to be done in their life to seek help. And again, David's site is grief.com. And I do encourage our listeners to visit his site. There are programs, there are resources, there's so much information there that can be helpful to you. And David, you're going to be in New York on October 28th at the New York Open Center. Can you tell us a little bit about that program? I'm so excited. I, I love the Open Center in New York, so I'm thrilled to be back there. And I'm going to be doing an evening about, you know, talking more about these tools and how we can remember more with love than pain. And, you know, I say one of the things I try to teach people is how pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. You're always going to miss your loved ones, but I don't want you to suffer needlessly. And there's things you can do to really release the pain and find the love and have a pure sense of grief rather than that horrible suffering, blaming, guilty grief. So that evening is going to be talking about some really practical tools to help people. And uh, I want to chat with people and answer questions. And I think it's just going to be a really inspiring, wonderful evening. And I really encourage people to let their friends know about it. Because by the way, everyone has a friend who's struggling with grief. So I really encourage them to check this out because it's going to be a special night. And again, that's October 28th at the New York Open Center. David, what would you like our listeners to remember from this conversation? I would love them to know that they don't have to be alone in their grief, that there are others out there who understand that they're not broken. And I would love them to know the pain and the grief they are feeling is because they loved and most people, if we have the choice to have just never known our loved one and skipped the pain, we'd rather take the pain to have the joy of knowing them. So to know what you're going through is normal, but you don't have to be alone. And there is help out there. And there's also people who can witness your pain. And I hope that people who are listening today will see that we are feeling their pain and witnessing their pain. David, thank you so much for being here with us today. As I said, I have lived this, and I know what that pain is like, but I also know that there is hope once you're able to go on with your life. And as you said, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So thank you for being here, for sharing some ways that we can learn to release the pain and feel the love. I think this is such an important conversation, and I'm so happy that you were here today to have it with me. 
Oh, Joan, thank you so much for doing it. I mean, you're, you know, when you have these kind of conversations, you are helping so many people. I wish there were more like you out there. Thank you for that, David. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. Soul by Rain is produced from various seed flowers. Its primary ingredients hail from the black cumin seed and the black raspberry seed. These two combine to provide a powerful antioxidant barrier against the devastating effects of stress. Soul by Rain has been hailed as one of the most important anti-aging antioxidants ever discovered. Soul is an anti-inflammatory and it helps prevent and repair radical damages for a healthier heart. Get your soul by calling your rain partner, Elmina Ziza, at 973-722-1. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. today is Dr. Mark Hyman, author of the new book, Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? Dr. Hyman is an 11-time New York Times bestselling author and an internationally recognized leader, speaker, educator, and advocate in the field of functional medicine. Welcome, Dr. Hyman. Thanks for joining us. I'm so glad to be here with you. So, Doctor, your new book, Food, What the Heck Should I Eat?, is based on the reality that most people have absolutely no idea what to eat for health and well-being. Just when we think we have it figured out, we're given new information that often conflicts with what we're taught. So why are we so confused and why are there so many theories? Well, we are confused because of a whole set of reasons. One, nutrition science is challenging because it's hard to study what people eat in open living environments. Mm-hmm. If you put them in a lab, like a lab rat, you could figure it out. But humans don't like to live in labs as lab rats. So we have to base it on population studies, which aren't really good at proving cause and effect and are often wrong. And uh, we also have corrupt science where we've got food industry 
publishing all sorts of research that contradicts the common sense of, for example, that soda causes obesity and diabetes, but Coca-Cola fund studies that show there's no link. Uh, and it's rampant. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also have the government giving dietary guidelines that actually don't represent science, but represent corporate interests and uh, ignore huge amounts of data on important issues like low-carb diets or saturated fat, for example. And those are undergoing revision now, which is a good thing. And we also have a lot of public health organizations that we rely on, like the American College of Cardiology, Heart Association, Diabetic Association, Nutrition, Dietetic Association, all of which are funded in part by the food industry, which corrupts their recommendations. And I think all those reasons lead to confusion, along with the media jumping on every latest scientific study and reporting it as if they're all equal, saying, you know, coconut oil is bad, coconut oil is good, meat's bad, meat's good. It's very confusing for people. And I think all those reasons lead to this confusion. And my book is really designed to go through all that, help people understand what we know in 2018, what the science is, and how we can sort through exactly what to eat. If you could sum it up, what should our daily diet look like? Well, you know, I, I, I jokingly call it a pegan diet, which is not to say we need another diet plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it was really as a spoof on the whole extremism of paleo and vegan and trying to sort of come up with what are the principles that, that everybody can kind of agree on. Uh, regardless of what their nutritional philosophy is and what are the things that, you know, we can kind of come to come consensus. So the first thing is everybody in the nutrition world agrees that sugar and starch, pretty much everybody, there's a few holdouts on the low-fat, eat hard-carb diet people, but there's very, very few. Um, they stay away from high glycemic foods, sugar, starchy foods. They're, they're seen as treats, not as staples. The second is we should be eating a very plant-rich diet, not plant-based, but plant-rich, meaning we eat a lot of fruit and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and, and things that are, are high in phytonutrients, uh, particularly the colorful variety of vegetables, mostly vegetables. Also in terms of fruit, you know, there are fruitarians, but uh, I think there's challenges with that, particularly if you think that 70% of Americans are overweight, fruit can be high glycemic. And so moderate amounts of fruit, it should be, you know, five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables, but it should be more vegetables and fruit, probably seven servings of veggies and two servings of fruit. And then the next thing is we want to eat healthy fats. Um, you know, we want to include really good fats in our diet, omega-3 fats, avocados, nuts and seeds, olive of oil, even, you know, grass-fed beets, whole eggs, uh, and, and uh, ghee, coconut oil, all those things are really, really great. So doctor, the diet plan that you just described, for someone who's trying to lose weight, if we follow that type of plan, will we naturally lose weight? Because we've been taught that we need to eat less and exercise more, but if we eat the right types of foods, can we actually increase the amount of food that we eat and still lose weight? Absolutely. I think the biggest myth and the biggest crime perpetrated on our population is that we should eat less and exercise more to lose weight. And the truth is that not all calories are the same. If you ask a kindergarten kid if you ate 21 cups of broccoli or a big gulp, are they the same? And they'll probably go, no. <laughs> but that is exactly what our government and, of course, the food industry tell us, that there's no difference in calories. It's all about moderation. But we know now that food is far more than calories, that it's information, that it's instructions that literally codes your biology. So when you eat sugar and starch calories, they change your hormones and metabolism, and they drive up insulin, which causes you to gain weight, to be hungry, to slow your metabolism and to prevent the fat from being released from the fat cells. Whereas if you eat a high fat diet, you actually reduce your hunger. You increase
increase your metabolism, you release fat from the fat cells, and you have all these positive benefits. It completely contradicts our notion of what's possible because we think we eat high fat, it's got a lot of calories per gram, more than twice as much as carbohydrates or protein, so if we eat less fat, we lose weight. It's not an energy problem. It's a hormonal problem. It's a metabolism issue. So we have to completely rethink our approach to weight. Doctor, do we really need to buy organic? How important is that? Oh, no. Yes and no is the answer. I mean, ideally, yes, but it's expensive for some. And I think the, cha- the changes in our food system will come to make that less expensive. However, there are guides. For example, I'm on the board of the Environmental Working Group, and there's a great guide called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. And the Dirty Dozen is the 12 most contaminated fruits and vegetables that you never want to eat if they're not organic. And the Clean 15 are ones that don't have to be organic and don't have a lot of pesticide residues. So, for example, strawberries are one of the worst uh, in terms of pesticide residues. You want to have those organic. Whereas, for example, avocados or bananas, not such a big deal uh, in terms of organic. So I think this is really important for people to understand that there are ways to, on a budget, minimize your exposure to pesticides and toxins. And we do know that it's not just the one dose here and there that's a problem. It's the accumulated lifelong exposure to a host of chemicals in our environment, in our food, in our household cleaning products, in our skincare products, in our water, in our air. They create a cumulative burden of toxicity that over time leads to everything from metabolic diseases like diabetes, obesity, heart disease, to autoimmune diseases, to Alzheimer's, to allergy and asthmatic diseases. So we really need to be vigilant in terms of reducing our exposures, but we don't have to be crazy about it. The book is Food, What the Heck Should I Eat? by Dr. Mark Hyman. If you would like to get more information about the book or Dr. Hyman, you can visit foodthebook.com. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us and for helping us sort through this maze of information. As you said, if we follow some of these basic principles, we can get off that hamster wheel and stop our head from spinning. So I really appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. Of course, of course. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. News, opinion, passion. This is AM 970, The Answer. It's partly cloudy and 55 degrees. What's going on? We have the answer. Senator Chuck Schumer is calling on the NTSB to improve its investigations into limousine crashes following a wreck in upstate New York that left 20 people dead. Kristen Marks reports. Speaking in Manhattan Sunday, the Democrat pointed out that the agency hasn't thoroughly investigated any limo crashes since it vowed in 2015 to gather data on such wrecks in order to implement improved safety regulations following a wreck on Long Island that killed four women. We want to avoid this from happening again. And one of the problems is there are gaping, glaring loopholes in regulating stretch limousines. Schumer hopes new regulations will be put in place within six months. Kristen Marks, NBC News Radio, New York. Thank you, Kristen. A Brooklyn street was renamed yesterday afternoon in honor of firefighter William Gormley, who died from a 9-11-related cancer. The new street sign is at the corner of Flatbush and Flatlands Avenue. Gormley worked at Ladder 174 in East Flatbush for 20 years. He was one of the many firefighters who raced to ground zero after the 9-11 attacks. He died of cancer last year. In sports, as we check on the American League Championship Series, as it continues, we're at the bottom of the seventh inning, and the Red Sox are leading the Astros 6-4. Jets did beat the Colts this afternoon, 42-34, and the Devils beat the Sharks 3-2. Traffic delays, well, if you're heading into the city at the GWB, it's about a 15-minute wait on the upper deck. Lower level looks good, Route 4, 46, or Palisades approach, no reported problems. 
Lincoln Tunnel's in good shape now inbound or outbound, and the Holland Tunnel, whatever earlier delays we had inbound from either approach, that has eased, and the outbound Holland also in pretty good shape. Weather for tonight, expect some clouds, might even see some periods of showers, low 53 degrees, cloudy for tomorrow, periods of rain early on, and then high near 70. You now know what's going on. I'm Amy Salerno and AIM 970, The Answer. Balance of Nature's Fruits and Veggies in a Capsule. This stuff is the best stuff I've ever taken. I don't take any medicine. I take nothing. If I get a little scratchy throat or even a headache, I take the vegetables. It works very fast. Or I'm feeling like a little down, tired, I take three of them, four of them, and I'm, I'm right up back to where I was. It's unreal how this stuff works, and I rave about it. This guy's a genius when it comes down to it. If anyone's skeptical about taking something, I get it. There's thousands of products out there. Look, you can be confident in this because one, the one thing that makes me really, really um, happy about is that you guys make the capsules out of a plant-based product. It's not crap. It's real food. Like you would put on the dinner table. <laughs> For a limited time, use discount code THEANSWER. And we'll take 35% off your first preferred set of fruits and veggies and have them shipped to you free. Call 800-246-8751 or go online to balanceofnature.com and use discount code THEANSWER. Tweet us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. We're everywhere. AM970. Theanswer.com. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Most of us have encountered aggressive people and difficult confrontations. When faced with anger, we tend to react emotionally, either withdrawing or responding with matched aggression. Today's guest, Douglas Knoll, believes that neither approach brings peace and understanding. He's here to explain how to successfully and efficiently calm an angry person or diffuse a situation. Doug is an internationally recognized mediator and peacemaker who specializes in difficult conflicts. He's the author of De Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Joan. Great to be here. So, Doug, no one is immune to being part of a difficult situation. We've all encountered that one person who really knows how to push our buttons. So what do you believe? <laughs> right. It's true. And, you know, I actually did the other night at a meeting. I wish I had read the book before that night. So <laughs> what do you believe are the biggest mistakes we make when dealing with an angry person? The first biggest mistake we make is that we listen to their words. Mm-hmm. And when we listen to their words, because that's what we're trained to do from the time we're small children, their words trigger us. We become immediately reactive uh, and either defensive or aggressive, as you said, ourselves. And now we're sucked into the conflict vortex and we have no ability or let me let me just say very limited ability to get ourselves out. And we have to recognize that when people are emotional, when they're when they're very angry and insulting and disrespectful, the thinking part of their brain, their prefrontal cortex is completely shut down. They are they're operating on programming that was programmed into them when they were children and they are being completely reactive. And so we have to have a different approach if we want to successfully get them calmed down to solve whatever the underlying problem is. And that's what I've been able to develop uh, over the past 15 years in my in my mediation practice and in my prison project. So, and that's the secret. The secret is learning not to listen to the words. And you know, Doug, what some people, they may do what what I tend to do is I, I don't like confrontation. I don't like to argue. I tend to just withdraw, ignore, and yes. avoid. And so that's not a good practice either. 
No, well, conflict avoidance is a very common tactic that people unconsciously adopt, and sometimes avoidance is the right thing to do. Sometimes it's not. But avoiding conflict in all cases is disempowering, because that's how bullies basically get their way. Or people, that's how disrespectful people get their way, and and that's not right or just or fair, Uh, nor is it moral, nor nor is it polite. So we have to be able to have the skills that when we decide that we have to really calm somebody down to get to a problem. We have to have that skill set. So so conflict avoidance is a tool. Aggression is a tool. Violence is a tool. And de-escalation is a tool. And which tool you want to use in any given moment is going to be determined by context and, and the situation and your own your own particular needs in that moment. So, Doug, let's talk about your process. What are the three essential steps? Step number one, ignore the words. We've been trained from the time we started speaking, and even before then, to listen to the words because we're taught that the words have meaning. But in this situation, for the, this 90 seconds, those words mean nothing. So ignore them. Because if you listen to the words, they're going to trigger you and you're going to get in trouble. Okay. Step number two, pay attention to the emotional experience of the speaker. And that means that you're going to be looking for all the emotions that are there. Because typically when somebody is enraged or angry or insulting, there is more than one emotion. Emotions come in complexes. They come in patterns and groups. There's never just anger, for example. So you're going to be looking for anger. You're going to be looking for somebody feeling disrespected. You're going to look, be looking for sadness, fear, anxiety, grief, shame, guilt, um, and then way down low, deep, 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 uh, a sense of being unloved and abandoned. And all these things are all happening all at once, but it's all being presented, let's say, through an intense emotions such as anger. So you're going to guess at the emotions. And then the last step, which is the counterintuitive part of all of this, and this is the part that it's easy to say, hard to get, is that we're going to reflect back the emotions we're guessing at. We're going to reflect them back to the speaker using a very simple use statement. So I would say, hey, Joan, you're really angry right now. You're really frustrated. You feel completely disrespected and unsupported. Um, You feel like you've been treated really unfairly and Um, You're a little bit anxious about what's going to happen, and you have a lot of sadness and grief that you seem to be all alone in the world. So by doing that, Mm -hmm. you're basically acknowledging that you're understanding how the other person's feeling. You're not battling them. You're validating them. Exactly correct. And what what brain science shows us, especially through a 2007 study by Matthew Lieberman at UCLA, is that when people get very emotional, their prefrontal cortex shuts down. When we label back their emotions to them, we give them back their emotions, reflect them back in these very simple use statements, we're literally lending them our prefrontal cortex so that they can process the emotional experience. And what the scanning studies show is that when we do this, the emotional centers of the brain immediately quiet down. I mean, it's almost instantaneous. Our brains are hardwired for this. So that's why this skill is so powerful and, and so effective because it's working with the brain, not against the brain. So, Doug, we ignore the words, we guess at the emotions, and we reflect the emotions back. What happens next? So it depends. Two things can happen. Well, two, a couple of things can happen. First, if, if you are successful the first time through, in other words, the person, whatever it is, you're successful and you de-escalate, you're going to see four unconscious reactions. Again, this is outside of consciousness. People don't even know they do it. One, they're going to nod their head affirmatively up and down. Two, they're going to give some kind of verbal response like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. I might <laughs> even shout it out, right? Okay. Okay. Three, th- there's going to be a dropping of the shoulders. And four, there's going to be a big sigh of relief. 
and they won't even know they're doing it. You're watching for those four unconscious reactions. When you hit those reactions, you know that you're getting them de-escalated. If they persist in yelling and screaming and doing whatever they want, you just stay with them, follow them like a horse, and just keep reflecting back the emotions. And you may have to reflect back the same emotion over and over again. You're really angry. You're really frustrated. Man, you are really enraged. Man, you are really hot and angry. You just have to keep with them, and eventually it will penetrate. Now, after 90 seconds, if you're not getting anywhere, this is not the time. <laughs> Back off and say, hey, you, you know, you need, let, let's, let's just take a pause and, and take a walk and take a deep breath. And hopefully, and then come at it again in 5 or 10 or 15 minutes. But typically, you can de-escalate somebody in 30 to 45 seconds. So there's a lot that has to go on in a short period of time. You need to try to understand what's going on with the other person and remove your ego from the equation. That's right. Well, it happens automatically. That, that is removing the ego. And that's a really cool thing that happens. The benefits of the speaker is that you got them calmed down. But there are huge benefits to you as the listener. The first is that you're completely empowered. And when you're focusing on their emotions, there's no room in your existence to get triggered by their words. So you feel completely empowered, centered, in control. You feel no anxiety. I mean, it's amazing how quiet you stay inside yourself in, in the face of this hurricane of words that are coming at you. The second thing that happens, which is even and more remarkable is that for the time that you're actually reflecting back the emotions, your ego dissolves and you experience this transcendental oneness with the other person. It's the, it's the most bizarre experience and it lasts for about 15 or 20 seconds, but it happens every single time. Now, Doug, parents deal with these types of situations on a regular basis. Does this All work with children? It not only works with children, it's essential to use it with children. And the reason that it's essential is because from about 18 months of, of after birth until about four years old, the emotional centers of a child's brain are maturing. The child has to go through a whole range of emotional experiences in order for the brain to understand how to link up the affect that's occurring inside the brain. That's the, what we call the actual physiological neurons firing in the brain feeling what's going on in the physical body and then how we how we make sense of that which is what we call emotion the labels we give such as anger and rage a child has to learn all this stuff and build a database of emotions if we tell a two-year-old boy for example don't be a sissy grow up don't cry what are we telling that little boy about emotions we're not allowing him to build a database of emotions that's going to allow him to be a healthy functioning young man and at 15 years old when he starts getting arrested in girls there's a train wreck going to happen so what we should be doing is when a when a when a child has a tantrum for example rather than yelling at the kid and telling him to shut up we should be saying you're really angry you're really frustrated you're not getting what you want you just feel really thwarted and nobody's supporting you and you don't feel loved stuff like that Right. The kid right. will quiet down in about 30 seconds, say, yeah, and now you can problem solve. Now you can say, okay, let's sort through what the problem is, appropriate to the age, of course. It's brilliant with children, and I submit that if parents did this with their kids, they would be teaching children emotional intelligence at a very young age, and their kids are going to be so much happier by the time they get to school age. It's amazing. And I think, Doug, you know, a lot of the problem with communication is, People just don't listen to each other. We're so worried That's about right. the next thing that we're going <laughs> to say that we don't even know what the other person is trying to convey to us. And so That's I correct. think this is brilliant because it forces you to become an active listener and a participant in a dialogue with another person. 
That's correct. We, we talk about, I, as I teach this, I talk about you, um, the tracks. There, you, you have your own track, and the other person, the speaker, has his or her own track. When you are doing this kind of listing, you are going to stay on that speaker's track. You're never going to lift that train off and put it onto your track. So it's very different from conversation. And the rules are different. The rules of listening are different than the rules for conversation. If I'm truly listening to you, I can interject all the times, whatever emotional experience you're having, Joan, and I can say, you're really frustrated right now. You're really angry or, wow, you're really scared. And I can interrupt. If it were conversation, you would think I was being very rude and impertinent and patronizing. But when I'm listening to you with emotions, you experience a very deep empathic connection with me. And, and as I say, it, you experience being listened into existence. The book is De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less by Douglas Knoll. If you would like to get more information about the book or Doug and his work, you can visit DougKnoll.com. That's N-O-L-L, DougKnoll.com. Doug, thank you so much for being here with us. As I said, I wish I had read this book before I was in a meeting the other evening, but I'm really <laughs> glad that I have now because, you know, you've given me tools that, that can change my life and so many others. And I hope everyone will get a copy of the book, Deescalate. It really will make an impact on your relationship. So thank you. Thanks, Joan. Thanks for having me on the show. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm sure you've heard that laughter is the best medicine, right? But maybe there's something even better for your health. I'm Christina Nemec, co-founder of PATH Health Consultants. Here at PATH, we focus on using lifestyle to prevent and manage health risks. We're a workplace wellness firm dedicated to improving the bottom line of the organizations we work with. Our innovative, personalized approach to wellness supports employees as they adopt and sustain behaviors that improve or maintain their health. In addition, we offer a variety of health seminars and workshops to companies interested in educating and supporting their employees in a group setting. Regular physical activity can prevent, manage, or even cure many conditions, including heart disease, diabetes, stroke, obesity, depression, certain types of cancer, and arthritis. Many prescription medications simply deal with the symptoms but can't actually reverse the disease. Regular exercise can increase your HDL or good cholesterol while also decreasing your triglyceride levels, and both are important to keeping your blood flowing smoothly. It can help to control your weight, improve your mood, boost your energy levels, get you a better night's sleep, and even improve your sex drive. If you'd like more information on how exercise is the best medicine or on workplace wellness, please contact us at pathhealthllc.com. That's pathhealthllc.com. Under the new Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the federal individual mandate penalty will be eliminated effective January 1st, 2019. However, your state may have its own insurance mandate requirements. Hi, I'm Ed Gaelic, a life and health insurance broker and founder of PSI Consultants located in Glenrock, New Jersey. We have specialized in personal insurance and company-sponsored health benefits since 1985. For individuals and families without company-sponsored health coverage, the most common time to obtain insurance is during the annual open enrollment period when there are no restrictions on who may enroll, what plan design to select, or which carrier to choose. This is your opportunity to research options for the coverage that best fits your needs and or budget for the upcoming year. 
The 2019 open enrollment begins on November 1st, 2018 and ends on December 15th, 2018. Plans purchased during open enrollment will start on January 1st, 2019. Coverage may be purchased on or off exchange. Federal subsidies for qualified persons are only available on exchange, also known as the marketplace. If you are not eligible for a subsidy, you will most likely have a wider array of options off exchange. If you do not enroll in a plan during this time, you may not be able to obtain insurance until January 2020 unless you have a triggering event that will qualify you for a special enrollment opportunity. After 60 days, your special enrollment period will end and you'll be without coverage until a future open enrollment opportunity applies. To contact us and learn more, please visit our website, psi-consultants.com. Life's lessons come in all shapes and sizes. Appreciate the little things in life and enjoy them. This is Jackie Atchison, certified divorce coach and founder at Better Path to Divorce. After an extremely difficult first marriage, I remarried and obtained sheer bliss. However, life had other plans for me and my own financial crisis occurred. No more vacations, theater, concerts, dining out, personal trainer, etc. I kept asking myself, why? After I stopped feeling sorry for myself, I put on my thinking cap and rearranged our entire budget. I made many changes to make me feel whole and stable again. I watched for sales at the grocery store and started cooking. We invited friends over for dinners and had small house parties. For the holidays with family, I suggested regifting. How easy is it to purchase something somebody wants, but ooh, to take a possession that is near and dear to you and give it to someone you love. That ended up becoming more loving and powerful for each giver. Those feelings inside, money could never buy. It took about four years to feel financially whole again. The changes made during the hard times have stayed with me. My why now became very clear. Appreciate the little things in life and enjoy them. Together we can do this. To learn more about me and divorce coaching, visit me at betterpathtodivorce.com. Do you worry about how to protect your family and valuables from intruders breaking into your home? Hi, I'm Dan Coleman, professional investigator and founder of Creative Solutions Investigative Services and Burglary Solutions. The thought of someone breaking into your home when you're away, or worse, someone entering your home when you're sleeping, is a frightening thought for all of us. Some simple steps can make a big difference in keeping your home safe and secure. Keep in mind that burglars and thieves want your valuables more than anything else. An experienced burglar knows that if they're confronted by a homeowner while committing the burglary, they could face more serious charges than if no one was home. So do everything you can to make your home look occupied at all times of the day. When it's dark, have multiple lights on timers, especially at dusk. During the day, make it look like there are children in the home. To protect yourself at night, make sure you have motion lights around the outside of your house and property. Did you know that most burglars are inside a home for less than three minutes? That's enough time to go to the master bedroom, steal jewelry or other valuables, and escape before the police arrive. So never store valuable or sentimental jewelry in a jewelry box inside your bedroom. Don't put off thinking about how to protect your home and family from a burglar until it's too late. If you need more information or assistance, you can contact me, Dan Coleman, through my website, csinvestigations.info or burglarysolutionsllc.com.
healthy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, a mindful living instructor and founder of Create Clarity. Amy offers classes to help individuals clarify who they are, reconnect with their genuine values, reawaken their intuition, and make a transformational shift to live a more vibrant life. She's here today to talk about the evolution of parenting in the United States. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. It's always great to be with you, Joan. Thanks for having me. So, Amy, today you're here to talk about the evolution of parenting in the United States. How has parenting evolved in our country? So the briefest summary that I can offer you now is that back in colonial America, reason rather than emotion dominated American child rearing. And children, as we remember, worked to support the family. And the family was very, very important. It was first the family, then the individual. Whereas today in our country, emotion is dominant in parenting. And surveys show parents currently are striving for their kids to be quote unquote happy. But our family time's actually been pulled apart due to the intense amount of activities our kids are involved in. And currently, more than ever before, parents are actually asking themselves, how do I know if I'm a good parent? How do I know if I'm a good mom? And this can actually lead to overparenting and anxiety in our children. And as we know, ironically, we're all talking about happiness, but the rise of anxiety and depression is definitely present in our country. So, Amy, the approaches are different, but were and are the goals of parenting the same? Absolutely. It's interesting, Joan, because in our efforts to raise our kids today, we have this mindset that we're, you know, we're raising our children, but we really need to have the mindset we're raising adults. We need our children to become independent, healthy adults. We have this humble yet enormous task of unfolding a human, and that human needs to become resilient and independent. With the approach that we as parents are taking today with it tending to be more emotion as the driving force or the driving factor to parenting. Are we creating resilient adults by utilizing that approach? Unfortunately, Joan, studies have shown that children today are less resilient. They do not have the same coping skills that children in previous generations have had. So this has definitely become a concern. So, Amy, thank you so much for being here with us to discuss the evolution of parenting in the United States. If you would like to learn more about Amy and her work, you can visit her website, createclarity.net. And as always, to hear more from Amy, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.
The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.